WDBM East Lansing. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will be coming up in just a few minutes, but for right now, I'm Aaron Martinez, and this is your weekly Impact Update. Federal authorities in Grand Haven, Michigan, are investigating an attack at a Coast Guard station there that they're treating as a domestic act of terrorism. A male suspect claiming to have explosives crashed his truck through the station gate around 6 a.m. Sunday morning. He then broke in and began assaulting Coast Guard personnel. The man was later subdued by Coast Guard officials whose investigation has found that the suspect did not have any explosives on him at the time of the incident. The Michigan State Police and the FBI Grand Rapids office are assisting in the investigation. For our global perspective, let's turn to Audrey Matus for the latest in international news. Leaders of Ukraine, Russia, Germany, and France have arranged for a summit on Wednesday to discuss potential peace plans for eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainian-Russian conflict began in April 2014, and since then, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Francois Hollande have been working together with Russia and Ukraine to find a possible solution. For international news, I'm Audrey Matus. Impact reporter Michaela Harris brings us the details on an upcoming on-campus poetry reading. On Wednesday, February 11th, the Arca Center for Poetry at MSU will sponsor a voicing poetry concert. The concert will spotlight local composers and poets as they share their original works, and the concert will be followed by an open question and answer session. The concert will take place from 7.30 to 9, Wednesday night, in the Arca Auditorium at Snyder Phillips. It will be open to the public. For Impact News, I'm Michaela Harris. Finally, we go to Nick Stanick with the latest update on the shooting that rattled East Lansing last week. A DeWitt man was murdered in the Grove Street parking lot last Thursday. 22-year-old Michael Smith was shot and killed just before midnight while he was sitting in his car with a friend. The friend was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. According to the Lansing State Journal, police say the shooting was not random and the two suspects remain at large. Smith was an aspiring rapper and a father of a two-year-old daughter. For Impact News, I'm Nick Stanick. For your weekly Impact Update, I'm Aaron Martinez. Exposure begins right now. WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM, Michigan State's Student Radio. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. Tonight, we'll begin the show with Quinn Hoffman as he interviews Dr. Ron Hall on his feature in the Oprah Network documentary, Light Girls. Quinn also met with Laura Hallou to discuss the upcoming chocolate party benefit at the MSU Museum. From there, we'll go back to me, where I interviewed Alex Lang from MSU's LBGT Resource Center on initiatives benefiting the LBGT campus community. I also interviewed Harisana Richards from the Vagina Monologues and Tashmika Tarok from the Firecracker Foundation over upcoming beneficiary events. We'll close off the show with my recap of civil rights leader and House Representative Congressman Lewis's visit to the Kellogg Center last Friday, along with my brief interview with them.
Once again, you're tuned into Exposure with Dane Orizel. Here's Quinn Hoffman with Dr. Ron Hall as he sat down to discuss his work with the Light Girls documentary. Dr. Ron Hall has also advanced studies in bleaching disorders, colorism, and shadism. So Dr. Ron Hall, a professor at Michigan State University for social work. So uh, you're here to talk to us today a little bit about uh, colorism and uh, bleaching syndrome. Uh, so yeah, give us a little introduction. What's, what's this bleaching <coughs> syndrome about? Well, it's an assimilation strategy that has been taking place among people of color probably since the antebellum period. And I think the country was so obsessed with the issue of race and racism that it completely overlooked some of the experiences of people of color uh, as pertains to uh, skin color. So, so what is this syndrome about? The syndrome is an assimilation strategy that's utilized by outgroups. So essentially, in brief, Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, and uh, Asian Americans essentially want to be white. It's, um, it's a matter of a better quality of life, being able to get a better job, uh, live in a more well-to-do community, otherwise not possible because of uh, racial discrimination. So this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, like early studies of psychology when they would have uh, a child pick a, a doll. One would be a colored doll, one would be a white doll, and they would typically uh, pick the white doll even if they were of color themselves. Is this kind of uh, playing off of that? Right. It's that you're talking about the clock and clock doll studies that were done in the 1950s for uh, school desegregation. And it was recognized that children as early as the age of three, even before they were able to articulate uh, what race and racism was about, uh, they understood emotionally and, and on some psychological level that it was less of a stigma to be in proximity to white and more of a stigma to be associated with anything non-white or black. So what is the uh, 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 current current battle here? What, what are we looking at now in present day? Well, it's become more complex because the issue has been joined by other persons of color. For the most part, uh, continuing from the doll studies, that involve persons of African descent. And people kind of didn't pay a lot of attention to the other groups of color. But after I published The Color Complex in... Uh, 1992, which I, I co-authored with uh, Dr. Midge Russell at DePaul University and uh, Kathy Russell, I had always known that the issue was much, much broader than the African-American community. And so I testified as an expert witness in a skin color discrimination case involving not uh, African-Americans and Euro-Americans, but an individual suing another individual on the basis of skin color discrimination, but belonging to the same racial and ethnic group. Uh, in 2009, I conferred with the attorneys in Atlanta, Georgia, of the case of Shyman Rye, who was an Asian person, and he had a son who intermarried with an African-American woman. And because of her complexion, and it was not something that was traditional in uh, Indian Asian cultures, the, uh, the father, uh, Shyman Rye, who's currently serving a life sentence, uh, had his daughter-in-law murdered uh, because of her skin color. Uh, since my case in 1992 involving skin color discrimination, there have literally been hundreds of cases filed by persons of color uh, accusing another person of color, discriminating against them on the basis of their skin color. So this whole issue of 
uh, skin color discrimination is really a subset of the racism that we saw in the 30s and the 40s and up to the 60s, which which still exists, but um, it's not. It's just but one part of the uh, issue. Wow. Um, so you were recently, uh, I was told you were featured on a documentary, Light Girls, is that right? Yes. Uh, the Oprah Network uh, asked Bill Duke, who's an actor and director, to complete a documentary on the subject of what they call colorism in the United States, in Europe, and in Canada. The same issue is referred to shadism. But I think colorism is more commonly understood here, so I'll use that term. In 2011, Bill Duke, with the help of Oprah Winfrey, uh, put a documentary together called Dark Girls. And it was an issue involving the implications of uh, skin color pertaining to darker-complected African-Americans in the African-American community. And there was so much attention given to that and so much viewership that they decided to uh, complete the issue by projecting a documentary called Light Girls, which just aired uh, actually on Martin Luther King's birthday this past uh, January 19th. And it was about 90 minutes long. And what I had always known uh, in the early 90s that the issue wasn't limited to the trials and tribulations pertaining to dark-skinned African-Americans, but it pertained to lighter-skinned African-Americans as well. And lighter-skinned African-Americans are set upon, given the pain of uh, their ethnic identity. That is, if a person who's African-American, but they have more Caucasian features, uh, green or blue eyes or a, a different hair texture, they're frequently not acknowledged as legitimate, legitimately black. And while it doesn't sound very significant on the face of it, when you hear that from childhood and, and constantly have to grapple with that and your acceptance, it becomes a source of, uh, source of pain. And I, I think that's part of the reason why you have a, a biracial movement now among uh, African-descended persons who um, were not always accepted by the black community, so they are, some at least are taking initiative to separate themselves and formulate their own quote-unquote biracial or mixed-race identity. So, um, in this documentary, uh, the, the first one was dark skin and this one's light skin. Correct. Uh, we're, we're focusing more on, uh, the, that the fact that there are also a lot of uh, limitations that come with, uh, having a lighter complexion as opposed to darker complexion. Right. There's a, a movement afoot in some places in Hollywood, at least now, uh, it's more difficult for lighter complexion persons to get work uh, because they don't look ethnic enough. So a person who has what I call soft ethnic features or not obviously black or obviously Latino, um, they are less likely in some instances to be able to uh, get a, a part in a, in a black film, for example. Then other individuals um, who proclaim themselves to be black in the media um, are not being accepted by the black community. For example, maybe 15 years ago, there was a lady who was African-American. She had naturally green eyes, and she had a lighter skin. And she appeared on the cover of Essence magazine, which is recognized as the leading magazine among African-American women. And 
When she appeared on the cover, the editor got letters from black women, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, uh, criticizing the magazine for allowing uh, this woman, quote-unquote, on our magazine. They didn't realize that she was an African-American, and that uh, prompted this lady whose name was Kate Sandler. She completed a documentary called A Question of Color, and she goes pretty much through uh, the trials and tribulations that she experienced and similar persons experienced with regard to their uh, ethnicity and their racial identity, which is what uh, the, the Light Girls documentary addressed in a, in a more recent uh, fashion. So I noticed that uh, both of these documentaries, it was uh, Light Girls and Dark Girls, right? Right. Um, so uh, a, a, a lyric comes to mind here. We're at a radio, uh, Earl Sweatshirt. Uh, he has a line where he says he's too uh, black for the white kids and too white for the blacks. Um, but this this is this is a male. Um, both of these imply girls. Is this because it was on the Oprah network? Is it because women are more harshly judged by their appearance? Or uh, does this affect both genders equally? No, it affects them disproportionately. Unfortunately, this society is still a sexist culture, and women are exploited for the physical attributes which means if they don't have the, uh, the stature, the complexion, the hair texture, et cetera, that is considered the ideal, well, they have lesser status. Males may be stigmatized similarly, but they can earn status. So if an African-American male is uh, an athlete, um, if they're someone who's wealthy, uh, if they're someone who's otherwise accorded some notability, then they can compensate for their skin color. And I think you see that uh, with examples of uh, Michael Jordan, for example. If Michael Jordan were not, perhaps in the mind of some, the best basketball player ever, if he did not have that skill, uh, that notoriety, he'd probably be uh, less of an idealized person than he is currently. So uh, are there any final words you'd like to leave us with here? Well, the next phase of this work is what I've been talking about the last uh, 20 years. And this May, I will be traveling to Johannesburg, South Africa. And after that trip, where I'll be collecting surveys and conducting uh, focus groups as well as lecturing. Then I will have covered the entire planet in the last 12, 13 years on this issue pertaining to skin color. And so that I, I can say from firsthand experience that there's not been one country where there's a difference. It's sometimes manifested a little differently because of the cultural implications, but the fact of the skin color hierarchy exists throughout the world. All right. Thank you for talking with us today.
Quinn Hoffman also sat down for a sweet interview with Laura Hallou to talk about the upcoming 26th annual Chocolate Party Benefit, supporting the MSU Museum and taking place at the Kellogg Center on Sunday, February 22nd. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now I'm sitting down with Laura Hallou, the acting director of the MSU Museum. Uh, Welcome, Laura. It's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, we're bringing you in here because uh, coming up, later in the month is something called the uh, Chocolate Party Benefit. That's right. So so what's this uh, Chocolate Party Benefit about? You know, can you believe this is my job? So the MSU Museum, for a number of years, has had a Chocolate Party Benefit, and it's all about care and preservation of our museum collections. So this is one of our primary fundraising events where we generate funds for the care and stewardship and preservation of our objects and artifacts and specimens. And we have close to a million uh, in our main museum facility and stored around campus. Okay, so what what exactly is the, uh, the chocolate aspect of this? Well, believe it or not, we're going to just about fill the Big Ten rooms over in the Kellogg Center with chocolate in all forms. Really one of the highlights of the event has been the the culinary competition. This is a professional culinary event for chefs and students around our region, and they are literally going to compete and make masterpieces and, and sort of almost sculpting out of chocolate, the, the key ingredient. Everything must use chocolate and must be edible, and they are going to come up with some pretty spectacular and amazing creations. Awesome. Um, why Why chocolate? That's a really good question. Um, this event started, gosh, close to 20 years ago. It's been just a real treasured tradition, and it and it started kind of informally just as a way to get people together um, and have some conversation and camaraderie around, you know, a, a type of food that a lot of people really, really enjoy. And it just kind of grew from there, and we made a connection with a, a gentleman, Tom Chappie, who runs Great Lakes Gourmet, and he's really kind of connected to the culinary community, and he runs the competition for us. And it just took off. It, it's, it's just, there's nothing like it. When you walk into this room, you're almost overwhelmed with the smell of chocolate, and then you see these masterpieces, which are, I should say, they're inspired by our museum collections or inspired from our museum exhibits. So, you know, we've had everything from, you know, working gardens with flowing chocolate, um, film reels and top hats and pyramids and spaceships. It's it's pretty incredible. Wow. And so this is a benefit. That's right. So uh, the money goes to the museum? That's right. Yeah. And, and what, what are the, what are the, what's the goal of the benefit? Well, we're the Science and Culture Museum on campus, so we have uh, really extensive and deep collections in a number of areas in the natural and cultural world. So this is an event that we use to generate funds that will promote care and stewardship of the collections. Recently, we've used the proceeds from this event, and we'll buy some protective cabinetry so that we have good, robust um, cabinets that can protect and store and make sure that these collections are available for research now as well into future generations. Awesome. Um, do you get a lot of students that come to these, or is it typically uh, older folk? This is a real mix. Um, We get a real broad section of the community, and kind of the funny thing about this event is um, it is a a benefit for our museum, but at the same time, it does bring out the chocolate lovers, you know. So if if uh, you really, really love chocolate, this is kind of the place to be to consume it in all forms. Um, 
you said there's a competition, mm-hmm. right? So what what is the actual what are the, what's the grounds of the this competition? Good question. So it's a professional culinary competition, and and just as a side note, it's it's kind of fascinating to watch. You can you can see the judges kind of working their way around the room, and we don't often get a window into that world. So it's it's sort of fun to watch the creativity and the intensity that's going on, uh, especially when we have teams of students who've never done something like this before. It's it's kind of a, a really electric experience for them, and they're they've got criteria the judges are looking for everything from um, artistic merit, execution, use of chocolate, uh, and then, you know, sort of keeping with the theme and presentation and and all those kinds of things. So it has to taste good. It has to look good. It has to be well produced. Okay. So they're making kind of art with chocolate, right? That's right. That's right. So, but you also said it has to taste good. Uh So at the end of the day, does this art just get eaten? Some do. Some, um, most in fact, um, the, the chefs and the students will, will make side plates, you know, so they have the presentation piece and then they'll have side pieces which duplicate um, all the ingredients, but maybe in a, in a plated format. And it's always interesting to see, you know, how these pieces might live on after our event. Some go back to a restaurant and they're on display, you know, for a while, and then some dismantled and, and munched away. So if uh, th- this is uh, this is this event does cost money, it's a, you need a ticket, right? Yes, yes. But um, you, when you get in there, there's you get to eat chocolate, right? Pretty much for two hours. For yeah. two hours. Yeah, yeah. And and you really need to pace yourself with something like this. It's you know it's something that I learned kind of the hard way that you need to start slow and you need to make choices. As much as you'd like to think that you're going to to you know have a buffet of nonstop chocolate for two hours, you want to pace yourself and take it slow and, and take a break. So we'll, you know, we'll have coffee and milk or pretzels or something to kind of cleanse your palate. And there's a silent auction. We have a museum display that we always do over in the Kellogg Center to kind of give people an idea of what this event is all about and show some of the collections that they may not be familiar with. So there, there are other little points of interest um, in between the feasting. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one last time mm-hmm. to wrap it up, uh, when, where, uh, how can they get tickets? Okay. It's Sunday, February 22nd at the Kellogg Hotel and Conference Center from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Tickets are available at the MSU Museum, online at museum.msu.edu, at Bacon Cakes, which is one of our chocolatier vendors on Kalamazoo Street, or you can get them at the door. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. We'll be right back in just a minute. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny the, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. 
Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure, and I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. Up next, we have my interview with Alex Lang, Assistant Director at MSU's LBGT Resource Center, about alternative Valentine's Day plans for the campus's LBGT community, as well as the People Like Me mobile application and the new all-gender bathrooms that are appearing on campus. You're tuned into Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I'm here today with Alex Lang, Assistant Director from the LBGT Resource Center at Michigan State University. Thank you for coming in today, Alex. How are you? Good. I was just in Denver yesterday, so it's a lot warmer there than it is here. <laughs> Quite the trip over here. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you here today. Um, so how about we start off with the background on the, the Resource Center? Uh, the LBGT Resource Center, or the Lesbian, Bisexual, Gay, or Transgender Resource Center, um, was established here at Michigan State University uh, around 2002. And at that time, it was the Office of LGBT Concerns. It wasn't actually a physical place on campus. Uh, we The center got its physical starting around 2008. And that's when we moved into the Student Services Building on the third floor, where we still currently are in room 302. Um, in 2010, we had an uh, expansion, uh, which now where our sort of family room lobby area is, in addition to our offices. Um, so the Resource Center has is still in its infancy compared to other offices here on campus, but still um, doing a lot of good, great things all the time. We really are here to serve um, not only LBGT students, they're our primary concern, um, but 80% of the people who walk into the center are ally students, whether heterosexual or cisgender. Uh, so they uh, are really, or rather our office is really there to support all students, whether through education, through community building, through advocacy, through climate concerns, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, how did you first get uh, started at the Resource Center? I started July of this past year, actually. Um, so this week is eight months uh, that I've been with the center. I'm originally from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So again, the weather is a new thing. <laughs> uh but uh, did my grad work at the University of Georgia in higher education administration and um, have always wanted to work with LBGT students um, and have. I've worked at community centers in the past, Compass Community Center in Lake Worth, Florida, for instance, is a community center directly dedicated to LGBT folks that are not affiliated with a college campus. I worked there for two years working with youth services. Um, and I've worked on and off with the community in a professional role for the past uh five years now. So then came to Michigan State when this position opened up. Um, and I'm really over all of our student-led programs, so whether that's educational programs, community building programs, our discussion groups, 
um, individual development programs, our first year experience program, our lavender reception, which will happen in April this year, which is sort of our recognition of those who are LGBT who are graduating from the university, um, whether in the this spring, summer, or fall. Great. And uh, so could you elaborate a little on the services that the center provides the students? Absolutely. Um, our services are multifaceted. Um, our primary service is just being a place on campus that folks can go to feel safe and secure. So our um, lobby area or our family room, I'm using air quotes for those who cannot see me, um, is really meant for a place for people to come hang out, um, just have space on campus that can be their own way to study, to talk more with staff. Um, we also offer a um, we used to call it Safe Zone, and a lot of college campuses call it Safe Zone, but we call our program Quill, which is Queer, Inclusive, Living, and Learning. And it's this idea that if in our if in the institutional non-discrimination policy we say we protect against sexual orientation and gender identity, which we do, then no one has an option not to be a safe zone, right? Mm. And so this idea that um, we want to help people get foundational knowledge of sexuality and gender especially for those who have never had to examine that about themselves before. And then how do we create inclusive learning environments for students, faculty, and staff who identify as LGBTQ? So the first part of Quill is a web course in D2L, which I know for some is like, uh, another web course. It's actually a lot of fun. We include GIFs. We include YouTube videos. We include a lot of different things in that to make it interesting and engaging. And that way, we in the second part of Quill, we have a workshop that's really practice-focused and really addresses people about how they can actually create an inclusive environment rather than it being this abstract concept. We also have discussion groups, um, specifically one that we're running this semester is called Color Me Queer, and it's a discussion group to talk about the intersections of race, gender, and sexual orientation on campus. Uh, last month, we talked about queer people of color representation in the media. Uh, this next week, we're talking about asexuality and then talking about dating and racially themed parties and the other two. Um, we also have a library, lending library for folks full of vast resources that are available to people to come pick up, the checkoutable completely that would not be normally in the MSU library, um, as well as a first-year experience program. for So students who are new to the university can engage in, in a cohort that is also new, but also LGBTQ identified. So those are a sample of our programs. I could keep talking forever, but I know you also would like a shorter <laughs> interview for purposes. Oh, that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you mentioned the Quill program. Now, is that available to the public also, or is that just exclusively for Michigan State students? It is actually available to the public. Um, our students... Uh, while it's available to students, faculty, and staff pretty easily, anyone from the public can apply for an MSU community ID, which is all you need to get into D2L, and be able to take the course. All right. Now, uh, do you collaborate with any uh, LGBT groups on campus, like any of the neighborhood caucuses? Or do you oversee them at all? Or what's kind of your interaction with some of the student-led groups on campus? Personally, I advise... Um, two groups on campus, the the Alliance of Queer and Ally Students, which is a branch of ASMSU, and they're more of an advocacy sort of um, political organization really advocating for equality on and off campus for LGBT students. Um, I also staff advise um, QCross, which is Queer Christians Reclaiming Our Spirituality and Sexuality, so talking about this intersection of religion and uh, sexual identity and gender identity on campus. But in term, but I advise those groups more so as someone who is asked to advise those groups. The office technically has no formal relation with 
um, or any formal reporting structure to any of the 13 LGBT student organizations. Um, but we do collaborate often with them. So we uh, work with different groups such as QPOC, which is the Queer People of Color Coalition, and TransAction, which is our transgender and ally student organization for transgender and gender nonconforming students, um, pretty regularly. And we'll also do presentations for the caucus groups, um, as well as the other groups on campus as needed. And we're always there to advocate and help students with whatever we need or whatever they need, rather, too. And if they want to start a new group, um, so for instance, um, OSTEM, which is Out in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, um, went inactive on this campus a few years ago, and there's a few students who'd like to bring that back. Um, so we'll work with those students to do that. Sure. Are any of the, the groups or anything at the Resource Center, um, are you guys planning any sort of programs for the LGBT community for Valentine's Day as far as uh, making any inclusive activities? Uh, while we aren't planning anything specifically, we're trying to tie people into other events that are. So, for instance, Ring, which is the North Neighborhood Caucus, is doing a Valentine's Extravaganza event tomorrow in partnership with RJ um, to talk about um, sort of increasing in creating inclusive sort of dating environments. Um, the International Student Association this past weekend actually hosted um, a sort of speed dating for international students as well and reached out to our office into how they could make that event more inclusive for LGBT people as well. Um, so while our office doesn't necessarily, while we're in student affairs, we're not trying to make student affairs, mm -hmm. which was a horrible <laughs> joke, and I'm fully acknowledging it was a horrible <laughs> joke. As far as, the, are there any specific events that you know of that are happening uh, this Valentine's Day, or is that, some, is that promotion... Uh, going mostly through the student groups? It's mostly through the student groups. Um, this weekend is also, um, we, we uh, the Alliance is taking 55 students to be a delegation for the Midwestern Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, and Allied College Conference, or EMBLTEC. Um, so there will actually be students going off campus to a, this big conference in Illinois uh, this weekend as well. And the conference at Illinois will have some ways for folks to mingle and match. Um, but mainly it's through the student groups that other people, um, that the sort of speed dating, love type of events are happening. Now um, uh, Back to the, the conference that you just mentioned, what kind of things are discussed there? Uh, really anything that's to do with the community and college campuses. So, um, for instance, I'm presenting a workshop with a student about the, the lived realities of coming out and how that affects homelessness rates in the community. I'm presenting with another student on trans visibility and talking about how transgender students can be more visible on college campuses through programming, student organizations, and more. There's going to be, uh, groups that are talking about, um, asexuality and sort of being an ally to asexuals. There will be folks talking about queer people of color and how they show up on college campuses specifically. Um, so there's a wide variety of topics and speakers. Laverne Cox will be one of the plenary speakers, star of Orange is the New Black, um, as well as Bianca Del Rio, who just won RuPaul's Drag Race season six uh, recently, will be headlining the drag show there. Um, and it's really a good time for students to just meet one another on campuses, talk about challenges with their campus, but also talk about successes as well. Sure. And uh, I noticed on your website... Um... There's an app called People Like Me. Could you mm -hmm. explain that app? Yeah, so the app is actually in beta testing right now. Um, an MSU alumna actually created the app to talk about um, what are the businesses 
and services in the area that actually actively support LGBT organizations. And that way people can look on the app, download it for your phone, um, and write whether someone was uh, friendly to you because you were an LGBT person or not. Um, it's really trying to sort of this idea of capital activism and using your money to really help and support those who support us um, as a community versus others. Now, can the app be used for... Um... I guess, other areas of potential discrimination like gender or race, or is it more catered to the LGBT community? It's it's catered to both sexuality and gender. I think there's always room for the app to expand. Um, but because the LGBT community is a community of sexuality and gender, um, that's who the app is catered towards right now. Sure. And uh, currently you said it's in beta testing. Mm-hmm. Um, is it available at all for consumers to start testing out? Absolutely. It's available for download right now. All right, now is that a mobile app or is it an online mobile application? App. All right. I also uh, noticed that you're involved with a uh, photo voice study. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's uh, that study about? So it's both a research project and an assessment project for our office. And we want to understand how people, um, how students at MSU visualize campus climate. So this idea of the feelings, thoughts, behaviors that are projected to them onto them as LGBT people. Um, photo voice is a sort of new research method that's really being becoming popularized in research scholarship right now. And it's this idea that, you know, there are some people, you know, for me, I love to talk about my experiences. Um, for others, they prefer to write and journal. This is a third method that really gets to those visual learners who say, you know, this is what campus feels like to me. And it could be a very literal picture, like taking a picture of a building and saying, I experienced discrimination in this building. Or it could be a very metaphorical, really meta image of like a shadow of a tree and being like, I always feel like I'm under the shadow of MSU. Um, So really getting at this idea that we want to understand how students are experiencing campus right now, but trying to do that in multiple ways. And so students who are part of the study, and anyone is free to be a part of the study as long as you're an undergraduate student and identify as LGBTQ, Um, can take pictures of their experiences and then we'll come together in a focus group or an individual interview depending on their comfort level and talk to us and a researcher in the College of Education, Dr. Jenny Jones, and talk about how um, the pictures describe their experiences on campus. We're also going to do some focus groups for those who don't want to be a part of the photo part of the study but still want to share their experiences on campus. Sure. Now, uh, has this program, or I guess a, a similar style, been uh, tried at any other universities or maybe in any other uh, any other fields outside of LGBT, or is this kind of a, a new program that MSU is initiating? We It's sort of new, sort of not. So um, for the past 10 years, um, folks have been studying LGBT campus climate issues through very survey types of methodologies. Um, and some focus group stuff. But no, for my knowledge, no one has really done this with the c- campus communities to such a large array or such a large extent. There's nothing super published on it, I would say. Um, other sort of s- photo methodologies have been used to describe racial climates um, as well as climates for those with disabilities, but never really focus on the LGBT community to this extent on a college campus. Sure. So it is newish. All right. Now, um, uh, recently the the center received a donation for all gender restroom signs um, mm-hmm. from, uh, I believe it was uh, mydoorsign.com. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, where can those signs be found on campus? Where can students find those all-gender restrooms at the moment? Uh, so there are the where those signs are in particular is with the Olin Health Center, which has been a huge partner for us in crying, trying to create more trans inclusivity in the health center and in sort of all the way through from intake forms to physical facilities. In terms of finding an all-gender restroom on campus, it's accessible to all people of all different types of abilities and identities. Excuse me. We have on our website a map of all of those and where they're available and differentiate between residence hall and campus building. Um, if you go to our new ta- on our new website, there's a transit MSU page that talks about um, all the sort of policy considerations trans students have to specifically navigate over others. And under that is the all gender uh, restroom map. And folks can find where they they're specifically listed on the website, both as dots um, that tells you physically where the building is on campus and the room number as well. So people can find them. Uh, now, do you see those restrooms expand into more of the residential areas on campus or maybe even Uh, local businesses outside of MSU, or is this something that will stay more with uh, campus buildings for the time being? Right now, we haven't had the map for very long, so for now, it's just campus buildings, but we're hoping to expand a little bit further. Um, Most, um, and in all new construction on campus, there has to be an all-gender accessible restroom or even any major, I think it's 75% of the building is being renovated, um, a new all-gender restroom will be put in place to there. Almost all of the residence halls have at least one, but less than 50% of campus buildings have one right now. Um, So if you think about being a trans student, having to navigate just going to the bathroom in between classes, you're thinking about trying to travel three buildings away to go to the bathroom and then hopefully come back to that building as well. Um, So that is a new new, uh, way that folks can find those spaces really easily. But uh, expanding them to businesses is in the talks of it right now. Have you guys done any other work outside of MSU, or do you concentrate mostly just on the campus population? We concentrate mostly on campus. Um, because we're a part of the Division of Student Affairs and Services, we're really catered to students even in particular. Um, but my boss, D. Herbert, who's the director of the center, really works with faculty and staff on curriculum consultations, work with HR to provide classes and courses. Um, but we have also done speaking events off-campus, partner with off-campus partners, uh, to bring programs onto campus. So for Transgender Day of Remembrance, for instance, that happens in late November to honor the lives of those trans people, particularly trans people of color, who have been murdered over the past year. We There are some religious affili- groups that come on campus to speak during that event. Um, but our main work is here on campus, though we do partner sometimes with Kellogg Corporation as well to do some speaking events with their company. Now, uh, um, how can students get involved with the working with the resource center? Uh, we have students walk through our door every day who ask that same question. Um, there's a few opportunities to get involved. One is your primary avenue of involvement is going to be to get involved with those, one of those 13 student organizations on campus. And all of their information is listed on our website as well as their contact information, number one. Number two, we have um, various volunteer roles that we have with the center, sort of our family room hosts, if you would say, um, who help us uh, staff the front door of the center and really are the first point people who greet people when they walk in the door. Um, And people walk in our door from having coming out issues to being seniors who are like, I want to do more. I want to get involved more. Um, So really helping us be those point people at the desk. 
Um, we also have opportunities for folks to do art pieces with the center. We're really proud of our community gallery. Um, and we're going to have some new pieces from the special collections, LGBT, LGBT special collections library come through soon. Um, so people who want to help us out with that. Um, and we're also looking for student employees from year to year as well um, who want to just get more involved with the center and also need a few bucks. Um, so those are a few ways I would also say um, just come come chat with us. Come to our stop by the office. Say hello. We can always find a space and a place for a person really easily. Great. Now, is there anything else that you wanted to share about anything we went over today? Um, I would say, too, that um, the Quill Web course that I mentioned earlier is actually really brand new um, and really cutting edge. The conference that we were at this weekend um, was called Creating Change. It's the National Conference of the LGBTQ Task Force and brought together a lot of different folks from different college campuses and asked, you know, are you, what are you doing for your safe zone types of training? And we're being really innovative with this. Um, no one has really brought it to a web course format yet. Uh, maybe one or two other schools, but out of the 300 institutions in attendance, that's pretty cool to be one of the two. Um, so it's free for anyone to sign up to be a part of ND2L and then sign up for a subsequent workshop later. Um, and again, if anyone ever wants to stop by the Resource Center, always we're there to say hello, welcome you, um, and just say hi. I bake sometimes too, so that helps. But. And uh, where is the Resource Center located again? It's in room 302 on the third floor of Student Services Building on North Campus, across from the Broad Art Museum or the Spaceship, as it is more affectionately <laughs> known. All right, Alex, thanks for coming in today. Absolutely. Thank you. Exposure will return in just a minute. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I also met with Harrisana Richards, publicity coordinator and co-director from the MSU Vagina Monologues, and Tashmika Tarak from the Firecracker Foundation 
to discuss future events and initiatives held by the Vagina Monologues in the month of February. You're tuned into Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I'm here today with Harisana Richards, Publicity Coordinator and Co-Director for the MSU Vagina Monologues, and Tashmika Torak from the Firecracker Foundation. Thank you both for coming in today. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having us. No problem. All right. Uh, Let's start things off with you, Harisana. Uh, What are the Vagina Monologues? Well, the Vagina Monologues is a play that has been put on ever since 1997. It started out with Eve Ensler. She wrote the play after interviewing about 200 women about their lives as women, like what they go through every day, the stigmas they face, the good sides, the bad sides, and basically just asking women to talk about their vaginas because it's something I think in our society is very much taboo and very much they don't really want people to really talk about their private areas. They say, oh, you shouldn't talk about that. You shouldn't express that. It's yours and you should keep it to yourself. But when Eve Ensler opened up this dialogue, she realized that there was so much about being a woman that women didn't necessarily talk about and express. And that also opened up dialogue to situations of sexual assault and domestic violence that women face. And we have this awful statistic right now that one out of every three women is a victim of sexual violence in their lifetime. And when you think about all the women in the world, the women you encounter every day, that's a horribly staggering statistic. And then even then, it's one out of five for men. So the point of these models is that we do them every single year at the university. It's our 17th year at MSU. Just to bring awareness to this issue, just to let people know that this is happening. And it also gives women and survivors a creative way to express how they feel about about sexual, I'm sorry, I get like really choked up talking about it, about sexual violence. And I don't know, it's just one of those things, like every time I see the show, even though it's been my fourth year in this organization, it's always different. It's always impactful. It's always powerful because they may be the same stories over and over again, but each woman expresses them so much differently. And they also bring a little bit of themselves into it too. That's a real powerful experience because you have women expressing their stories, their perspectives in many different ways. And it's an opportunity that not many women have to express how they feel. And once you see the show, it might open your eyes to different things that happen to women. And also, you may have a story of your own that you may feel more comfortable sharing with the world afterwards. Great. Are the vagina monologues just here at MSU, or is this kind of a national uh, school program? Like, will you see this at other universities, or is it exclusively at Michigan State? Oh my gosh, no. You'll see this all over the world. They do performances in Australia, Asia, New York, California, everywhere. Mostly it is at universities, but also maybe small towns, maybe organizations will take it upon themselves to put on productions of the monologues. And it's all under V-Day, another organization, greater parent organization created by Eve Ensler. And there are many, many different shows. There's a memory, a monologue, a rant, and a prayer that's put on by V-Day Lansing every year. Lots of lots of different plays that are all over the world that happen every year during V-Season, which is around from December to like mid-March. I read that... Uh... You're having a flash mob coming up on Valentine's Day uh, for V-Day. Could you explain more about that event and also the organization it'll be supporting? Well, the flash mob actually came from V-Day as well. There's a campaign within V-Day called One Billion Rising. And V-Day, we've marked it as Valentine's Day, but it's also V-Day, a day for women to rise and to really express that like this is... we are taking a stand against sexual and domestic violence for not just women here but for women all over the world so there'll be flash mobs like not only here but probably in other places all over the country and ours is so we just raise awareness and remind people that like women are here women are strong and we invite so many all all people to come from all over the place to 
join us in the flash mob and to celebrate women and to show people and just bring attention that this is happening. We are rising. We are showing everyone that it is time to take a stand, come up and dance. Not everything that has to do with sexual assault has to be sad and depressing and angry. And I think the flash mob is a wonderful opportunity to bring joy and happiness and excitement into it. So we really would encourage all people to come out and join us with that. And uh, what other events do you have planned for this month? For the month of February, also we have a celebration of women, which is a poetry reading in collaboration with RCAH, ARCA Poetry Center, and also with the Old Town Poetry Series. And it'll be at Dublin Square on February 17th. And what we'll do there is we'll just be reading original works along with pre-written works about women, celebrating women and their life and what we do and how we feel and all of our beautiful expressions. And then we'll take you donations at the door if you can. And then also all the proceeds will then go to Vagina Mollas and Firecracker Foundation. So now for you, Tashmika, uh, how did the Firecracker Foundation get started? Um, Well, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. um, And so I started to do some research about what kind of therapies children um, had access to in the Lansing area. Um, And I found that we had kind of a gap there. So I decided to create something that would provide um, high-quality, consistent therapy for children under the age of 18 who survive sexual trauma. What are some of the future initiatives or events that you'll be working with uh, for the Firecracker Foundation? Well, aside from the Vagina Monologues and our participation with that, we're also involved with a big banquet challenge um, coming up on Monday. People can cast votes um, to win us 10000 in um, at the end of March. So um, that's a really big thing, and people can find that information at the U Club. Uh, now, do either of you work with any other organizations here, either on campus or off campus? Well, the Firecracker Foundation actually has a partnership with St. Vincent Catholic Charities um, to provide more therapy services throughout the community. So beyond what you guys will be collaborating together, um, are there any future events that you'll be working on together? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think that the vagina monologues in and of itself is what the main focus is is on. Um, and the beautiful thing of collaborating with all of these cast members is, is really um, our organization really promotes storytelling. We're big into telling the stories that will help people understand the diversity of sexual trauma, um, who it happens to, how, where, why. You know, it's not people who live in poverty. It's not people who are rich. It's not white people or black people. It's really a universal kind of epidemic. Um, and so it's been a really unique opportunity to work with the Vagina Monologues because that's what this is all about, basically offering the community an opportunity to really support those stories. Um, and especially when you talk about how we always tell people who have suffered some kind of violence or some kind of sexual trauma, that it's not their fault, right? That they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't deserve it. But I think this is one of the things that we have a really hard time with. We have a hard time bearing those stories, um, even after we all agree that they don't deserve to be ostracized. So I think it's a really good opportunity for the community to kind of come out, hear the stories in solidarity, um, and maybe, like Harisana said, have share in those stories themselves and be able to be more willing to share their own or support those people who have their own stories. Great. And uh, is there anything else that either of you would like to share today about either the Vagina Monologues or the Firecracker Foundation? The show itself. (laughs) Yeah, the show itself. Um, Yeah, people can get their tickets. Uh, It's on the 27th and 28th of February, 8 p.m. on the 27th and 2 and 8 p.m. on the 28th. 
I would really encourage everyone just to come out and enjoy this experience. These, um, my fellow castmates, my Vimon sisters are working really hard to present this beautiful kind of universal movement to the Lansing area and really working hard to help children um, get the therapy that they need who are the youngest sufferers in our community of this type of violence. So I just want to ask that everybody just come out and support us. Hashmika and Hersana, thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. For the past several months, Project 6050 has been celebrating two milestones in civil rights history. The Supreme Court's decision to outlaw segregation in public schools in 1954 and President Lyndon Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act into law in 1964. To celebrate these milestones, Project 6050 has been organizing a variety of events and activities to support Michigan State's growing diversity. Last Friday on February 6th, civil rights leader and Georgia House Representative Congressman John Lewis visited the Kellogg Center to deliver a speech as a part of Project 6050's Slavery to Freedom series. Congressman Lewis is a key figure during America's civil rights movement as a freedom rider, chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and a keynote speaker at the March on Washington. Despite being arrested over 40 times throughout his lifetime for speaking out on race relations and human rights in the United States, Congressman Lewis still remains a vocal activist for civil rights today. I was scheduled to interview the congressman following his speech, but due to his kindness and patience to meet with nearly every person who attended his speech, my planned interview time was cut down to only one question in order for the congressman to make it to his flight on time. Still, he was very polite and considerate about taking the time to answer my question in full. So I was at the fall convocation this year, which you gave a speech at. I'm a first-year student here. And I just wanted to know if you could give one more message to the Spartans here and our future leaders of tomorrow, what would it be? My message would be very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to do something, to organize, to march, but you must speak up and speak out and change things. And young people can do that. Another generation of young people did it. And you have the technology. We didn't have uh, a fax machine during the 60s. We had an old mimeograph machine. We didn't have a cellular telephone. We hadn't heard of the internet. But with what we had, we brought about a nonviolent revolution. So use what you have to do good and change the world. Thank you so much, Congressman March, book two, Congressman Lewis's sequel to his number one New York Times best-selling graphic novel memoir is out in bookstores now. That's it for tonight's episode of Exposure. I've been your host, Daniel Rizel. All episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You've been listening to Exposure with your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.